how to maximize your return on the greatest asset you'll ever have, that is yourself, using positive psychology. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Before we get into this week's conversation, which I'm really excited about, I'd like to ask a favor. If you're enjoying these conversations and our guest, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It really does mean a lot. So thank you. What a wonderful conversation. I'm still feeling all kinds of positive emotions after this recording. Dr. Martin C. is a professor of financial planning and has some research where he's focused on integrating positive psychology with financial planning. During our conversation, we discuss how positive psychology and personal finances can integrate to allow people to live into their strengths and thrive financially and personally. Dr. C. believes that people can lead meaningful and fulfilling lives when we intentionally align our money with what we desire most in life. And that's not what we think will impress our neighbors, but rather what we desire deep inside of ourselves. How can we use negative emotions and not be afraid of those emotions and ignore them like most of us do? And I speak from experience, but how can we see and use those negative emotions as cues to lean into the emotion in search of its valuable lesson? Dr. C touches on the benefits of intentionally using our time and money to achieve meaning and purpose in our lives. We talk about some research that shows the benefits we see when people experience and intentionally enhance positive emotions. And this is not just thinking we're happy, but it's feeling, experiencing, and being with the positive emotions. The goal of positive psychology and personal finances is to move you, me, and anyone else listening towards some steps that allow us to feel and experience a life of financially functioning to flourishing. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Today, I am excited to have Dr. Martin C., who is an associate professor of financial planning at Kansas State University, where he teaches in the CFP board registered undergraduate and PhD programs. He received his PhD in housing and consumer economics with an emphasis in family financial planning from the University of Georgia. His research has been recognized by the Financial Planning Association, our CFP Board Standards Financial Planning Awards, and many other awards and recognition throughout his career. Dr. C currently serves on the Board of Directors for the Financial Planning Association, and he serves as an editorial review board for the Journal of Financial Planning and the Journal of Financial Therapy, amongst many, many other things in his life right now. But today, right now, he is talking to us on the Most Hated F Word. So Martin, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. 
I was introduced to your work from Dr. Brad Klontz in the financial psychology course at Crichton when they had us review your paper from functioning to flourishing. And a couple episodes, we had Sarah on the, your co-author, Sarah on the show. So I thought it'd be fantastic to have your perspective of the paper and this idea of integrating positive psychology with financial planning, which I know you do a lot of work around. But before we get there, a lot of this podcast is focusing on exploring the intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. And we often use stories to explain and explore this idea. And I want to start with your story. I've heard different podcasts with you on and just reading on online about, I guess, an inflection point that may or may not have occurred in your studies at the University of Georgia when you found yourself... I don't know, maybe you can talk to us how you got there, but to do with the Aspire Center. So why don't we start there? What significance did the Aspire Center have on your story? Yeah, Sean, if you'll allow, I'll go a step back further than that and build up to it. You know, I was one of those college students that was lost. Didn't know what I was going to do. I came to college. I was high achieving with 32 credit hours and was charging for it and then uh, promptly had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Played more Xbox, hung out more, and just didn't really have a purpose. And it really came to a head when I had a semester with a 169 GPA, which, which meant I was, I was on the verge of <laughs> not being invited back to the university. And I remember going and realizing, okay, I got to find out what I want to do. And that's actually when I found financial planning. Um, university of Georgia had just really started a financial planning program. And for me, I liked numbers, but I really wanted to work with people. Uh, it sort of became the path for me. And as I was going through my education, you know, I was being pretty diligent and, okay, I've got to learn tax law. I've got to learn estate law. I've got to learn, uh, you know, investments so that I can get the right recommendations for clients. And that was my mindset, a little bit more of an economics, maybe, uh, perspective. Uh, and then all of a sudden, two things sort of happened simultaneously. The first uh, was I had the opportunity to TA for an individual named Elizabeth Jutan who is a past president of the Financial Planning Association. And it was really interesting because we were doing the case studies class and she didn't really care if the technical recommendations were right. Now, she wanted them to be you know, close. Uh, it was still student work and you wanted it to be right. But in terms of perfect, that didn't matter. What mattered is how you communicated that to a client, how it actually aligned to them and their goals and their preferences as opposed to the other. The other thing that really broke my brain was I had the opportunity to work at the Aspire Clinic um, at the University of Georgia. And it is this really interesting, unique collaboration. So uh, an individual consumer can go there. They can get financial advice. They can get marriage and family therapy advice. They can get uh, advice about how they should design their home if they're older and they're trying to get a, a living habitat. There's also nutrition advice there. So a little bit all of one. And the first time I set in, and I watched, uh, observed a session done by a marriage and family therapist. It blew my brain because literally the therapist didn't say anything. All they did was facilitate that conversation and that inner dialogue. In this case, it was between husband and spouse so that they could actually see and hear and listen to each other in ways uh, that maybe they weren't doing outside of it. And you really saw the role of facilitator, not a director, not somebody that's hard charging, leaving somebody to do the right thing, but facilitating people to find it. And what's interesting, Sean, is now I'm at Kansas State University and actually Megan McCoy, 
as a faculty member here, it just so happened she was the therapist that was doing that very first session that I had the opportunity to sit in. So small world sometimes. Wow. You know, I, I mentioned the word inflection point and I see two big ones for you. That's sitting in with Elizabeth. I didn't catch her last name, but I love the fact that she didn't care so much about the technical response. And it makes me understand why that session where the family therapist really resonated to you. And I like your word choice of a facilitator. So as you studied and continued learning about financial planning, got exposed in financial planning, have PhD in financial planning, what role does facilitation come into the financial planning world? And I come from a trained, I'm a CFP financial planner, and I don't know if we use that word at all. And, you know, I could speak from experience going through courses and they tell us to talk or let the client talk 70%, 30%. But I mean, that went through our minds and we just like talked and talked and talked and talked. And many times I found myself being like, okay, does that make sense? And they're like, get me out of here. <laughs> How important in your research and your, I guess your eyes is this idea of facilitation when we start to look at it in the financial planning spectrum? You know, that's a good question, Sean. And my perspective is our job is to deliver value. Our job is to deliver value to our clients. And the value is determined by the client, not by the advisor, right? And so the advisor might think they know what the client wants, but actually the client knows what they want. And your job is to meet that demand, meet them where they are. And it's so hard because we spend so much time learning how to get the right answer. But the reality is getting the right answer, technical answer, is actually relatively easy <laughs> compared to understanding what does this client actually care about? What is it that they actually want to accomplish? What is their success? And what is my job in facilitating it? And you see so many advisors that get so frustrated that clients don't follow their advice. You know, I did all this hard work. I told them exactly what to do and they didn't do it. What the advisor has to do is look in the mirror. Well, they're paying you because they want to change and they're not changing. So obviously there's a disconnect here. And it's your job as the person that's being paid is to try to learn and understand and appreciate those barriers or those pressures or those resistance points that the client is feeling and actually deliver value by moving them along that spectrum. And it may not be the pace the advisor wants. They may want them to change everything and get their house in order and all of that. But who cares if you can move that client forward at their pace, understanding where they need to go. And your job is to push, but to move them along and get them in a, in a better scenario. And that's what's really hard for a lot of folks to understand. You know, what I'm really hearing in that statement that resonates with me is like moving along their pace. I mean, U.S. has similar statistics in Canada about how money's top stressor, our debt levels are growing, and we have more information than ever online, blogs, podcasts, et cetera. And I just think people are so inundated with information that others want them to like run at their pace. But I really think it's important for people listening is like, we don't need to implement everything all at once, find our pace and... I like the words you used earlier, meet us where we're at. And I think that's a good one even for ourselves as like a consumer listening. Be like, hey, maybe my neighbor's doing all of these amazing things. And I know we have some cognitive biases at play of relatively, relatively deprivation there. But I think that compassion about, hey, meet myself where I'm at and do it at my own pace is something that I really hear you saying. Yeah, Sean, I think that's absolutely 
you know, one of the things that's been a little bit broken about the educational model for financial planners from, you know, the head of a financial planning uh, department is we have a capstone class. So we're designed, we get a, sometimes it's a live client information that we're getting. And our job is to take everything we've learned and try to deliver advice to a client in a way that's actionable. And oftentimes those plans are 100 pages long. And the client looks at you and it's like, what the heck am I supposed to do? And by the way, most of the words you've written, I don't understand anyway. So who matters in this relationship? Is it the advisor and is it the client? If the client doesn't understand it and doesn't buy in, it literally doesn't matter. You just wasted all of that time and you're doing a disservice to the client. So advisors have to step back and understand what the consumer wants. And similarly, uh, what's so interesting about consumers is oftentimes they don't tell the full truth. They don't share they have the money here or they say, well, I kind of want to do this. But then later on in the conversation, no, this is really my priority. And it's sort of interesting that we have this interesting dialogue. And I, I know most folks listening to you are those consumers or those folks that are potential clients. And what's really hard is for an advisor to serve you well, they've got to trust and listen. And for the advisor to be able to serve you well, you've got to trust them and open up a little bit, which can be really scary with this individual that maybe you don't fully know, but you're kind of trusting your whole life's dreams to. It's a lot to ask for a client and like to open up one of the biggest stressors in their lives and fully expose, I guess, the areas that they might not be proud of. I think, yeah, that trust needs to be there and, and earned. So I want to I wanna go to your paper, From Functioning to Flourishing. What brought you to the point to being like, hey, let's look at positive psychology and integrate it with financial planning. And sorry, before I go there, maybe first go explain again, what is positive psychology? And also what is not positive psychology? Let's start there. Yeah. So Sean, a, a little bit of a, of a story as I walk into that. So one of the best things of my job is to get to go talk to lots of advisors all over the place. And one of the things that I ask them is, why did you get into this? Why did you get into this profession? And the answers weren't so I could earn a client an extra X percent of return or I could save X on taxes. It was about how do I help an individual meet their life goals? And then we asked, well, what does success look like? And typically what they would say is, well, I know I've been successful when that child we've been saving for for 18 years starts college. That's a long time to figure out if you've actually had success with your clients. You know, is there a way to understand if the client is feeling that success at all of those markers along the road, as opposed to just viewing it as we're doing all this work and we'll just feel successful at the end? Um, and what's interesting is advisors want to do that, but they don't really know how or how they can really think about success on a regular basis with their clients. And that's really what walked us to positive psychology, which is all about understanding basically an individual's happiness, their success, what is going on in their lives, are they flourishing? And that's really what it is about, taking those clients, those consumers to that level where they're just really happy and content and they're living a life of meaning. So, you know, I always hate to start with a definition, but you'll have to allow me to do that. I'm still an academic by training, but this is a really powerful definition. This is a definition of positive psychology. It's the scientific study of the strengths that enable individuals and communities to thrive. Two words there, and I'm going to give you another definition, but two words there that I really, really highlight, and that is strength. 
we spend a lot of time talking about what's wrong in the world or this person isn't good at this. Why aren't they good at this? But let's reframe that and let's try to find people's strengths. Because if we can leverage people's strengths, oftentimes their weaknesses just don't matter. There's other people around to help them and move them through. So how can we focus on people living into their strengths and allow them to thrive? Thrive is a powerful word. Thrive isn't that just you're doing well or you're succeeding. That's where you're thriving. That's living the best life that you could possibly do. And one more definition for you, Sean. Uh, The field is founded on the belief that people want to lead meaningful and fulfilling lives to cultivate what is best within themselves and to enhance their experiences of love, work, and play. And the reality is we're on a podcast to talk about money. It doesn't sound like it's about money, but it really is because money is a means. It's not an end. You will never find happiness in money. But if you can intentionally align your money with what it is you're trying to accomplish, you can facilitate those things that matter to you. And that's really the whole premise of positive financial planning, of the integration of positive psychology and financial planning. I really, really appreciate you giving that explanation and those definitions and pulling out those words, strength, thrive, meaningful, love, work and play. You're so right. I mean, if I put my financial planning head on, we look at deficit. Uh, Oh, you're not saving enough. You're not doing enough. You're not this enough, not this enough, not this enough. Here's how much you need to retire. This is how much you have. Whereas flipping it being like, hey, what strengths do you have? When have you saved? Or I mean, maybe you can give us an example of how consumers or advisors with their consumers can reframe a typical conversation that we have with ourselves around money from a positive psychology perspective. Yeah, Sean, and I think there's a there's a money example which I'll give, but I think it also translates a little bit broader than with money. So a lot of you have colleagues that you work with or people that that you're around, and it is often easy to focus on the things they do that you don't like. So I'm a manager at K-State, and I've got probably 15 people that report to me, and there's a wide variety of strengths and weaknesses within that. And I have found myself at times being like, why can't this person do this? If they would do that, it would be so much easier. And oh, by the way, usually that's because that's the way I think. So it should be a strength for everybody because it's a strength for me. And the reality is, is there's so much value overlying with that, that people should do this or people need to have that. That if you can really spend the time to step back and say, okay, maybe that's a weakness. Maybe they don't communicate like they should. Or maybe they send really short emails, and that really uh, makes you angry. Uh, but if you can focus on those strengths, you can really start to value them for what they are, and you can still talk and communicate around maybe areas of improvement. But you're doing a disservice to yourself and other folks if you allow those weaknesses to dominate the conversation instead of those strengths. I'll give a story actually uh, related to my personal uh, life related to finances and how it shaped me. I was raised in a house and we were upper middle class, but we were what they called at the time um, house rich cash poor. We had a very nice house, but disproportionate amount of money went to that budget. So my poor wife, when we get married, I don't want to spend any money on housing. I want to have a small amount as possible. I want to live comfortably. But for me, I viewed that sort of as a threat, that you would have so much money spent on sort of a recurring expense. And my wife is sitting there and it's like, she's a financial planner as well. I'm a CFP. We have the money. 
I want to be able to have a house where people come over and they can enjoy it. I can be proud of it. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to pay that amount. And what we had there was a little bit of a difference of, of values, of conversations. But for me, I was so worried about the threat of a recurring uh, expense that I didn't take that step back and view, well, what's the value of that to my family as a whole or to my weaknesses? That's not a perfect example, but hopefully that's close enough to connect. Yeah, you know, I mean, you touch on something that everyone experiences is A, that conversation with myself around negative emotions versus the strength, but B, connecting with your significant other, your partner, whomever else and... I think what I'm here, like earlier, you reminded me of this and I didn't say anything, but just having compassion towards yourself to allow yourself to feel those strengths. But in your story, I think having that compassion with ourselves enables you then to have compassion to your wife in your example. And I mean, that story resonates with me as when I grew up, I just felt like money was going to give me power and a voice. So I really thought that I need to collect it. My wife, she's a nurse and she didn't have that money story in her head. And I remember like us being like, oh, how do you think like that? Like going out to eat. I just put my finger down. What one had the one digit, like under 10 bucks we can eat. And she's like, why don't we just enjoy this? And it wasn't until I realized I was the deficit focus that I opened up compassion for myself that I could understand her perspective. And now we see it as strengths is like we can live and enjoy and we can also meet some other needs of mine. But I I guess what I'm pulling out of what you're saying is just that compassion allows us to focus on those strengths. Now, my question is, and I have had other people talk about this too, around positive psychology. If we're always strength focused, are we avoiding the emotions, the negative emotions? Are we avoiding those? So uh, a pushback against positive psychology has been, uh, it can give false optimism or hope. It's living in the perfect world that doesn't actually exist. And Yes, positive psychology without realism can be out of touch. But it's more of a viewpoint uh, than a religion, let's say, about how we want to uh, view. And I'd also say, you know, the way that positive psychology would indicate that you're successful would also indicate where there are deficits. So, for example, if you look at well-being theory, um, it says that uh, there are five things that, that matter. So the first is positive emotion. So that you're feeling happiness in your life. Well, low levels of positive emotion um, are helpful in understanding both thriving and lack of thriving for what that might be. Second is engagement. And that is you do something in your life that you're passionate about. And the lack of that can also indicate a deficit. Third is relationships. It's really important to have relationships, whatever it might be in your life, whether it's friends, whether it's not. And the lack of that definitely indicate opportunities. Then there's finding that meaning in life. What is it that you're living for? And many of these are sort of, you know, when you think about traditional psychology, which has been focused on, let's say, alleviating deficits, getting people back to functioning. These are mirror images of a lot of the things that have been measured historically, but it is functioning. It is focusing more on that thrive perspective than not. The last part of well-being that we look at is whether you're feeling accomplishments in your life. And once again, I think with all five of those things, you can see how if you can focus on those five things, it will lead you to thrive, but it also will provide lots of insights um, into where there are, are opportunities. But I would say when I uh, went back to the Aspire Clinic, we had to fill out these session reports. 
And it was marriage and family therapists that designed it. So it was their forms. We were, it was their world. We were just living in it, right? And one of the things we had to indicate at the top of every form was what was the theoretical perspective that we brought? That is, given where the client was, what perspective were we using to try to push them forward and nudge them forward? And depending on the client and depending on the therapist, they could use five or six different perspectives with their client. Now, as an advisor at the time, I thought, I don't know, is it modern portfolio theory? Like, what's my perspective um, as an advisor giving financial advice? But I would say that we owe it to ourselves to understand people are at different places and it's not a one lens fits all perspective. And it may be at some times in life, it is most useful to apply positive psychology. And there's other times in life where, okay, maybe we don't need to focus on thriving right now. I've got a three-month-old at home. And if I focused on thriving right now, um, I would, you know, I'd be driving myself crazy. So maybe right now I'm in more of a functioning until more sleep comes. But we have to, once again, have that grace with ourselves to understand that. Again, I'm hearing this idea of compassion and even self-awareness to, I like your approach that it's not all or one. It's not like someone just practices positive psychology and I'll be all, I think you make a really good point in those negative emotions are an indication of where we can lean into. And I mean, sometimes that's, that's scary because that's fear and we avoid fear, but I agree that I guess the door is being slightly opened if we accept it. And over the years, I've tried to understand this crazy little brain of mine. And it's required me to go into some thoughts that I didn't want to, but I've also learned and seen that it's nice to go into them and then go to the, Hey, what's going well after I've gone in there a bit. So like kind of go back and forth. Cause then you could start to like understand what accomplishments or what growth you've been able to do rather than just sticking into that deficit mindset. And that's really what's attracted me to positive psychology. So the word that you're really speaking to that, to me is at the heart of positive psychology is intentionality. It's intentionality with your thought and with your actions. So, you know, one of the most common positive psychology exercises is the what went well exercise. And that just requires that, you know, every day for a week or two weeks or whatever it is, you go home and write three things that went well in your life. And you're not ignoring that things went bad, but the way brains are hardwired is by nature, most of us tend to let what went bad rise to the surface and sort of wash over what went well. And so that exercise is all about you just intentionally thinking about what went well today so you can understand and truly appreciate what's going on in your lives. And I I would say, you know, as father of a three and a half year old and a three month old, that intentionality is hard to do on a daily basis. But If I can intentionally remember, I know I've got work to do, but I need to sting my son to sleep. The joy that that brings just from that intentional approach, but even broader, you know, the way positive psychology really deals with that from a financial perspective is really thinking intentionally about how you're using your money and how you're using your time and how you're using your money to support your allocation of time and vice versa. And that becomes really, really important if you can actually Take the time to think about what do I value and what's important and use your time and money to support those. That's what positive psychology is really about. It's not ignoring problems. It's about intentionally aligning with what it is you want to, you want to do and accomplish. You know, as you talk about that, my mind's like, why have we not been talking this way in financial planning around personal finance before of instead we're optimizing. But anyhow, we're going in the right direction right now. And 
what went well exercise. I hope people didn't hear that and be like, oh yeah, I know these exercises because really speak a bit more to the effectiveness because I'm sure people are listening like, oh yeah, I know meditate these things. I know, but we don't do them. And, you know, just a personal example, I started that what went well for probably six, seven months right now. And I have a two and four or five-year-old now. So I understand the busyness of going above functioning. But we've also been doing this with my staff of what went well every morning. And I can see the shift. I hear them talk about it. So I don't expect you to have the research right in front of you, but just speak to people trying this, whether it's in their personal life or with their finances, because I think it's quite powerful in the finance. And I believe you talked about that in your paper. Yeah, Sean, you know, I won't be an academic, but I will share some of the power. So as an academic, what we really care about is cause and effect. If something exists, what does it support? And you hear a lot of kumbaya, well, people are happy, but that's because they make a lot of money. or That's because they do this, well, that's because they do this. And what we're trained as, as academics to do is try to figure out what comes first. And what's really powerful is there is research showing that positive emotion leads to lots of positive outcomes. So whether it's actually people that experience positive emotions more regularly earn more income, they're more likely to succeed at work, they're more likely, and in the financial realm, this is really important, to exert willpower and exhibit self-control over unhealthy urges, uh, which is really important. They're more likely to be confident. They're more likely to uh, be able to save money, stay out of debt, and take time to make decisions. So let's be really clear. Positive emotion gives you power. It gives you power over yourself. It gives you patience. It allows you to take more time to make rational decisions that really align with what you do. So it's not a kumbaya sort of thing that, oh, you're happy, but it's because everything else is going on. No, the research actually shows that if you can work and intentionally enhance feelings of positive emotion, you're in a better place mentally to make decisions that will support your further well-being in life. And yeah, the evidence is really, really clear. There's been a lot of research. This research has been done multiple times on if this exercise is impactful. Um, and you had Dr. Acevedo on previously. I'm sure she shared part of her dissertation work was around um, uh, work along these lines. Uh, but yes, if you are intentional about thinking about what went well, it changes your mindset and your mindset changes the way that you act. And I think an important thing I'm hearing you say is if you're intentional, and you brought up that word in our previous discussion, because I know people are like, oh, I'm happy. I'm telling myself I'm happy. Why am I not happy? But I like how you're specifically saying if you're intentional with your actions to do these things that can have positive outcomes and not just thinking we're happy. Yeah, Sean, you know, it's interesting. There is a free questionnaire folks can take. They can go online. It's authentic happiness. It's out of University of Pennsylvania. And it will allow you to measure your well-being. And it's measured under those five things that I shared before. Positive emotion, engagement, relationship, meaning, and accomplishment. I did an interesting thing. I started doing it and tracking it. And you don't want to do it every day. You probably don't want to do it every month. But every six months, every year, you can start to learn what's going well in your life and what isn't. And I remember the two times that, that I took it. I think I took it early in 2019 and then I took it early in 2020. By all measures, I was happy. But there was still changes in what I was feeling. 
And a lot of that was constrained by what was going on. So for example, I noticed that my positive emotion had significantly increased compared to when I took it the first time. And I'm going to go back and blame it on the kid thing. When I took it the first time, I had a three-month-old at home, and I was feeling a lot of positive emotion, but also a lot of drain from getting up and changing it. But I saw that that went up. But what I also noticed is that my engagement went down significantly. And that engagement typically means you're not focusing on those things on a daily basis. You lose yourself in those hobbies, those excitements. So for me, it's basketball. I still play video games. I'm probably not supposed to admit that these days. But it had gone down. And it was also a period of time where I was traveling a lot. And I was happy. But what that told me was I was on the go and I was struggling just to settle down and focus on the things that mattered most to me and feeling that flow And then the last thing that I noticed, which was important, is my meaning had gone up. I felt more meaning in life. And what that told me is, well, life is a trade-off because part of the reason my meaning was up was because I was really loving work at K-State. I think at that time I was the president-elect for the Financial Planning Association traveling across the country. But it was really interesting, Sean, in that I was actually able to track and relate it to what was going on in my life. There was no doubt I was still happy. But there were things to learn about how I could focus my time, focus my energy intentionally to take me to that next level. Wow. You know, you just get my brain going is how many times do we look at our portfolio to see what asset class is increasing and what we have to do to maximize it and try to get the very minimal percentage increase when we could be shifting our gears to taking assessments like this and looking at these five key areas. Because as we said earlier, when you talked about the financial advisors who get into this, the outcome is they want their clients to live a meaningful life and happy. And this assessment sounds like a a wonderful tool that we can start tracking that like you did. And maybe the meaning also on yours was that three-month baby, despite the the changes. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the PERMA model, our well-being theory the acronym is PERMA. I'll put in the show notes, the link, because I think that's a wonderful uh, suggestion. Your other suggestion was the what went well exercise. Uh, I'll find a link for that and put it in the show notes as well. Can you talk to us about the gratitude letter and how you guys have adapted like in your financial planning paper? The reality is, is we don't really do a good job of telling people thank you, or sometimes even appreciating the things that people have, have done for us. And it's not that we don't care or mean it. Sometimes we just assume people know or we're just busy. You know, sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable to be emotional with folks. And the gratitude letter is all about an experience for you and an experience you allow somebody that's important to you to have. So the gratitude letter is you stepping back and writing a letter to somebody that has had an incredible impact in your life, whatever it might be. It could be a parent that supported you throughout, could be a mentor, and actually taking the time to write out exactly what they mean to you and exactly what they did to support you. I've thought about this and I've done this. That's an emotional experience. I've welled up writing this letter that's forcing me to think about, wow, I wouldn't be here if this person had done that. The wave of emotion that it causes. But then comes the hard part. You've got to go to the person and read them the letter. And that's the great part about this is not only is it allowing you and exposing you to those emotions, you're giving the gift of those positive emotions to that person that's impacted you. 
super powerful uh, for both individuals, can be really impactful within family situations. I know we all sometimes fight with our parents. We fight with our grandparents. We can create these divisions. But how many times have you actually sat back and taken the time to tell your parents, I'm thankful for you taking me to the ballpark all those days every single summer? And as a young parent uh, yourself, you're you're dealing with, with those lost afternoons that are experiencing or all the things they did to support you through life. It can be really impactful in a family scenario. Yeah. As parents, we try to do the best. And I think all parents are doing the best they can with what they have and where they're at. And I think it's often easy to think, why didn't my parents teach me about money this way? Or why didn't they do this? Or why didn't they do this? And again, there goes that negative thought patterns. But I don't know, as a parent, I'm wanting to do the best for my kids. And as he acquires more knowledge, maybe I'm, you know, he can look back and look at things that I didn't do properly. But the power of this letter is like, Going back to your parents, I mean, my kids are only two and five, but I couldn't imagine them writing a letter to me and saying, thanks for taking me biking or whatever it was. So I think that the power in that, especially around money, because we both know that there's so much guilt and shame and stress around money. Did I do it right for my kids to have a child, like maybe it's an adult child now, to write that letter even to their parents? I've been having conversations just around people in my circle of how powerful that could be for both parties. I think that it's wonderful that you're talking about that and have it in your paper. Yeah, you know, Sean, this isn't uh, maybe a direct parallel, but it's a story that was really impactful to me. And maybe it's a version of the gratitude letter, but it had all sorts of impact for me and my approach to life. So as a professor, I have all sorts of conversations with students about life, about careers, about all of these things. And, you know, you do the best you can, but you don't really know, right? And uh, there was a time about two years ago one of our students, the graduates, came back. I don't remember the conversation with the student at all, but apparently when he was a senior, he came in, he was really worried. We're in Kansas, so he was getting married, he was graduating, getting a job, buying a house, everything, I mean, starting life right away. And he was worried he wasn't going to live up to his duties, that he wasn't going to be able to do well at work, do well at his wife. And the story, what I told him is, you can't control everything, but you can control how you show up. If you show up every day with a positive attitude, find reasons to say yes instead of no, and move things through, you're going to be all right. And uh, this student came. Once again, I don't remember this conversation, but he shared that story with the student group. So I'm sitting there, you know, the professor trying not to ball in the back as the student tells the story. But it was a conversation that I'm sure in the minute I was present, but over the course of I don't remember that. And that's what we have to remember is as parents, as friends, as colleagues, as we never know what conversation is going to be really, really important. And we've got to allow ourselves to be present and to challenge ourselves. We've got a lot else going on in life, but to focus on the person that's in front of us, because you never know that five minute conversation that you yourself are not going to remember a month later, much less five years later, that somebody's going to come back in and say, wow, that really mattered. And for me, that validated sort of my approach and what I was trying to accomplish as a professor, speaking at the unintentional gratitude visit that's been allowed me to have. Your story reminds me of a TED talk called, I think it's Everyday Leadership. And I won't explain the story, I put it in the show notes, but essentially at the end, a very similar story. Didn't remember the conversation, came back. And in this story, or in the end, he just said, like, you know, it's very difficult to change the world yourself, but perhaps it's easier to change a person's perspective of the world than we think. 
And uh, yeah, your story certainly speaks to that. And, you know, and I think that's what's bringing it back to the integration of positive psychology and financial planning is that I like how it keeps us more present and focusing on those ideas of PERMA, where we're looking at the positive emotions and engagement relationships, as opposed to just optimizing that portfolio so that when we're 65, we can hang up our coats and be like, I did it. To me, this is really focusing on embracing intentionally the journey along the way. Despite those songs get born with your three-month-year-old and changing diapers, there's going to come time they don't want you to hug them. Right. Well, if, if you spend so much time focused on the destination, you forget about the journey. Yeah. A good friend of mine always says, life is like a mountain without a top. We're always aspiring, never arriving. So speaking of letters, my final question, so I, I certainly want to respect time is, let's fast forward to your 90, 95 years old, living anywhere in the world. Looks like you're in your office. You blow the roof off your office. Now you're in, on the front porch anywhere in the world. Looking back at your life, and I know you have two kids. Let's say that they've had kids now and you had to write a letter to them to talk about what you've learned. And this is not telling them what to do, sharing what you've learned over your life on how to live a healthy, thriving relationship with money. What would you put in that letter? Boy, you're, you're stretching me quite a bit here. So how to create a healthy relationship with money. So I would say, understand your priorities and Money isn't a priority. It's what you want to accomplish in your life. And if you can stay focused on that, uh, I think you've had Ted Klontz on this podcast. And I never forget a, a workshop I was at with him. And he had an exercise where he gave you a, a measuring tape. And he said, cut off to your current age, cut off the age when you think you're going to die, and then cut off the age where you can do whatever you want at any point in time. And what he was trying to do was show that was your retirement date and you had to work and then do that. And my takeaway was actually, screw that. I want to be doing what makes me happy right now. And if I'm not living a life of meaning right now, I need to be doing something else. It's nice to have a cushy, comfortable, tenure track job. But if I didn't have passion in what I was accomplishing, money really doesn't mean anything. It's just a means to an end. The other thing I would say, and maybe it's not money related, is what you do doesn't matter. What you allow people to do is what matters or what you support people in doing. And really important to focus on people. If you focus on people, everything else is going to take care of itself along the way. Well, we recorded it so we can get it scribed and you can get that letter going. But thank you. I appreciate that. I think it's a powerful message. And that idea of having that meaning now is, it's a big lesson for all of us. So I want to thank you very much for spending this last hour with us talking about money, life, and positive psychology, many things. And just want to recognize that I know you're busy and to spend this time means a lot to me and the audience. If you had maybe a book or even further resource, so I'll put them to Authentic Happiness website. Again, we don't want to. In, I don't want to inundate them. We kind of talked about we can all, small incremental. But if you had any other resource that's like, oh yeah, based on our conversation, do this. And maybe it's just one. So yeah, based on our conversation, is there one thing outside of the authentic happiness survey, or is or maybe that's just it? I think that would be the best. The other pattern I think is really happy or really important, and I can share is sort of understanding the difference between optimism and pessimism and the lens that that provides because. 
having power over yourself often comes from from moving from pessimism to optimism. So I can can share that as well. That's great. And that sounds like an hour conversation in and itself. So uh, thank you for that. Well, Dr. Martin C., I appreciate it. And thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in this week. As always, if you've been enjoying the content, please head over to Apple Podcasts. Leave one of those wonderful reviews. Until next time, have a great week.